Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored to be with my guest today, Professor Lev Luis Greenberg. He is the head of the Israel Sociological Society, and he teaches at Ben-Gurion University and Dartmouth University. It is my honor and privilege to discuss his new book, Movements with V and E in brackets. Movements of Resistance, Politics, Economy, and Society in Israel Palestine, 1931 to 2013. Thank you for joining us today, Lev. It's an honor. Thank you very much for the interview. Thank you. It's it's my pleasure. It's it's my privilege. Um as we begin, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself autobiographically? Um, my biography is a little uh, long, so I do it very short. I was born in uh, Argentina. I came to Israel in 1972. Um, I learned in the Hebrew University, uh, BA and uh, Master's and PhD in Tel Aviv University. I was a social activist since then and became also a public uh, intellectual, if you want. And um, I wrote several books. I I assume that is what we are going to talk about. Yes, absolutely. How how did you become inspired to study Israeli historical political economy or the history of Israel's political economy? It's not so much uh, an inspiration. It's a a question mark, a puzzle. When I came to Israel, um, I came from the atmosphere in South America of a new left and leftist movement. I arrived here, a government that was assumed to be socialist, and it was capitalist, it was a, a, a ruling Palestinians in a military regime, it was repressing other social groups, and was not at all um, representing the working class. But they called themselves the labor movement, and they had, the, you know, the red flag, and the, they sung the international. So it was a puzzle to understand what's going on. That's fascinating. It was indeed fascinating. <laughs> what inspired you to write this book? Where did the idea come from? I wrote this book after, I would say, two big research projects I have done before. The first one was on the Israeli political economy. I published two books on this, on the political economy. One based on my uh, master, and the second based on my PhD. Later on, I moved to uh, political sociology, 
uh, and I wrote uh, uh, several books and uh, articles about the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, or so-called peace process. And uh, finally, uh, I found that in uh, all my research, I have been uh, trying to understand the failure of resistance movements. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, then uh, I put almost everything together and I connect- connected it also to the failure of the so-called occupied resistance movements uh, in 2011. And, and then the, w- with that failure too, yeah, and uh, aiming to analyze Israeli politics and economics based on the resistance to power. And the, the very sad situation that even when the, you have very strong social movements, very strong uh, resistant uh, moments, they don't succeed to change uh, the power system in Israel, the structures, and we are continuously uh, going uh, backwards. Why did you choose the title "Movements of Resisted Resistance" with the with the letters "ve" in brackets? What's the significance of the title, the way you chose to word it and spell it out? My intention was to combine the relation between moments and movements. There are moments of resistance. When people go to the streets, and uh, they don't necessarily develop into movements, it's a kind of in, in, uh, attempt to enter the literature of uh, social movements, arguing that uh, not necessarily what we see as a social movement is all we can see as resistance. There are many uh, moments of resistance that have a very important historical impact, but they don't create movements, not necessarily create movements. And there are uh, movements that that not necessarily have such important impact. And this was the intention, to show that there is moments and movements are not the same, and ask when indeed moments of resistance can develop into movements and what happened with them. This was the intention. Thank you. Thanks for sharing it in that way as you clearly phrased it. Thanks for clarifying. What is the central thesis of your book? Can you share with our listeners the argument that your book attempts to make? Yes. uh, Basically, I try to analyze the political history of Israel through certain moments of resistance in different periods and to show how they shape the history, the political history of Israel and the political economy of Israel. And in order to do so, I analyze uh, seven moments that constitute seven chapters uh, where I show different types of resistance movements. You have a class resistance. And uh, uh, these were the subject of uh, my two initial books. Later on, uh, I analyzed um, what we we can call them ethnic riots. And I make the difference between 
uh, the reaction to ethnic riots and class uh, mobilization. Uh, I analyze also anti-colonial, two anti-colonial moments, one very, very short and completely unresearched. That is my contribution. No one knew that there was such a moment. By the way, this is a reason that I, I make the distinction between moment and movement. And this is the moment of resistance of Jews and Arabs together against the colonial uh, British power. Uh, and uh, later on, I analyzed the uh, First Intifada, that is a Palestinian movement against the colonial power of Israel. And uh, in, these are six chapters. And the last chapter, I analyzed the Israeli occupied movement and how it failed. In general, my argument is that uh, the power holders have a, a lot of uh, repertoires to neutralize resistance and to uh, stay in power. Uh, so, okay, uh, my argument is that resistance movements cannot be ignored. The power holders cannot ignore strong resistance movements but they can manipulate it. They have many uh, repertoires how to neutralize the um, weaker groups, the groups that are subordinated to them, uh, and, and maintain their power. But they maintain their power by changing something. And this is exactly what I'm doing in the, in the, in the book, to show how each moment of resistance created a historical change, not necessarily in the way that resistant groups were trying to do. And uh, here I show uh, in each chapter the difference. And uh, in principle, I have three categories. is uh, ethnic groups plus a, a, a struggle and anti-colonial struggle. And the so-called a, a, the Occupy movement that it became very, very important at the global level, it changed a lot at the level of um, discourse. And uh, it uh, imposed a new agenda on social, social justice and the, uh, the, the uh, economic, brain, uh, uh, econ economic policies, etc. But the main point is that almost nowhere it created political power. Uh -huh. And uh, it's uh, very rare to see a political movement that was able to take the, the social resistance against the 1%. But in the America, you call 1%, that is obviously much, uh, much more smaller than 1%. Uh, but um, in any way, we are talking about economic elites that continue ruling and they imposing the, their logic and the inability to control them by political power. My main argument is that uh, resistance movements, in order to be able to change, they need political power. And the power holders usually try to neutralize in different uh, repertoires. I, analyze the different repertoires of neutralization or distortion, we call this, of the demands. Um, 
Unfortunately, uh, my intention is a critical view of these uh, political processes, uh, uh, aiming to help the resistance to uh, be aware of uh, what it to do. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. In fact, it's actually interesting to think about your book in, in light of current political trends, because um, in light of what you've just alluded to, and I was actually thinking about this in reading your book, um, your, you, you, the chronology of your book is 1931 to 2013. And it's interesting that at least in the American political context, in both 2016 and also 2020, although tr- although political headlines in America were dominated by Donald Trump and his his election, in a different way, on the Democratic side of American politics, the phenomenon of Bernie Sanders was a significant trend in American political economic history to a certain degree, in the sense that. Both in 2020 and 2016, Bernie Sanders almost won the nomination. Could someone like Bernie Sanders ever ascend in Israeli politics the way he ascended in American politics? And if not, what does that tell us about Israel's political economy? You know, I'm very happy that you're mentioning American politics. I would say I would like to say something about the American politics and then to, to the problematic comparison with Israel. Mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders and Trump were reactions to the Occupy movement. Mm-hmm. The Occupy movement uh, uh, mobilized uh, and created a new agenda related to the uh, power of uh, uh, Wall Street. And the influence of the Wall Street in the political establishment in Washington. Both uh, Trump and Bernie Sanders went against them. Yes. Trump, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders said, "I will not take money from these people, for CEOs and and, and big capital. I take money only from small uh, uh, citizens that uh, they are not they they are not trying to buy me. Let's say." And uh, Trump uh, said, uh, well, okay, I don't need their money. I have enough money of myself. But in both cases, they they criticize the um, establishment in in Washington. In a sense, they they symbolize exactly the two options I'm writing about. One option is to organize political power representing the movement. That is what Sanders did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to remind you that the movement, Occupy uh, movement, it was also against Obama. And it was yes. against yeah. the uh, democratic uh, establishment. And those that succeeded to uh, stop Sanders are people from the democratic establishment. Mm-hmm. And uh, Trump did the other option or other repertoire, and it means to take the movement of critique and resistance to, to a moment of racism and hate inside society. So he, he took the, the critique, but instead of unifying 
and creating a movement of the 99, he created a division. That is typical uh, style uh, of uh, divide and rule. I represent the white supremacists, and we are against the Mexicans, the, the, against the, the, the black community. We are against all the others, the foreigners, yes. immigrants. So this is a repertoire to neutralize to, uh, the, the, the attempt to build a movement of the 99%. Mm. And the, the failure in most of the places in the world was exactly that, that they failed to unify the middle classes with the lower classes and different uh, uh, ethnic groups. Um, and the racism uh, was em- encouraged by the Occupy movements all over the world. Racism, fascism, right-wing uh, movements style uh, uh, Trump. But you don't, you don't have in, 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 in any more place in the world a kind of Bernie Sanders political party ruling following the Occupy movement of 2011. Uh-huh. So we need to learn about this failure. Yes. Next question is more complex. <laughs> this was the easy one. Yeah. The more complex question is related to the comparison with Israel. Uh-huh. You know, both Israel and the United States and many other societies are a settler society. European migrants took the lands of the uh, local population, the, the indigenous populations, and built their own societies in the image of Europe. And this created a feeling of the settlers that they are better than the others, better than the indigenous, and better than, than the non-European groups that were coming, like Africans in, in, in the United States or the Oriental Jews in Israel. The point is this, that comparing the politics of the United States with the politics of Israel it may, it's a mistake because the Europeans, the white supremacists in the United States are the right wing. But the uh, European uh, settlers, in the case of Israel, are the left. And the group, the, the, what we call the Ashkenazi uh, left, are those that settled, took the lands, and created the conflict with the Palestinians. So the, this comparison is very difficult. And Israel is still the model for white supremacists all over the world. Because in, in Israel, you have Jewish supremacy. And it's called democracy, despite the fact it's not, that it's not so working as a democracy. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate your insight. And so I guess, like in the context of Israel, in today's political climate, could someone like Bernie Sanders, with his worldview, ascend as far as he did in the United States? If there was someone with a similar philosophy in Israeli politics, could he achieve the same thing in the Israeli pl- political world that Sanders achieved in the United States? You know, in my book, I try to, understand, to explain why it is not possible in the case of Israel. Not directly asking, uh, uh, as a, asking your question, mm. 
But the point is that the uh, potential for such a movement is completely uh, divided between uh, lower classes that are in themselves in conflict, Oriental Jews and Palestinian Arabs, and the middle classes that could lead a, a kind of liberal uh, style of politics like uh, Bernie Sanders. But uh, I think the conflict on the lands that is still here and the military uh, um, rule of Palestinians are at the heart of the, all everything that we are doing. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Some people believed that in the labor movement was emerging a leader uh, similar to Bernie Sanders. She is uh, European, Ashkenazi in the labor movement, Imerav uh, Michaeli, and she's liberal. And she knows very well uh, the policy of Bernie Sanders, uh, and maybe she sympathizes. But you know, the labor movement is the movement of the settlers. And still, one of the first demands uh, uh, of the Labour Party now in the new government is to keep the lands of the settlers inside the so-called sovereign Israel. You have, and they are called socialists. This is exactly the question I was trying to understand from the beginning. How a movement of settlers that took lands from the Palestinians but created some kind of equality between the European settlers, even not the Jewish Oriental Jews, only for the European settlers, they can be called socialists. This is a contradiction, and this is part of the, and my, I think, deep understanding of the political problems in Israel. Interesting. Very insightful. <laughs> and to, discouraging. You should say that. <laughs> to, our, to listeners who might not be familiar with the intellectual contributions made by Israeli critical sociology and Israeli critical sociologists. Can you describe the key thinkers who have made the most noteworthy contributions to this field? And how did such thinkers influence you personally and intellectually? And how do such thinkers inform the worldview and perspective of your book? Thank you. This is an excellent question, and I, I, I'm happy to have the opportunity to honor uh, my mentors and my most important teachers. Um, I would like to mention three uh, intellectuals. Uh, two of them passed away, and the third one uh, is my first uh, uh, mentor, uh, Michael Shalev. Um, mm -hmm. I would like to talk first about those that passed away, sure. Baruch Kimmerling and uh, Jonathan Shapiro. I think the most original intellectual in Israel by far is uh, Baruch Kimmerling, uh -huh. a professor in the, from the Hebrew University. He mostly published in uh, English because he didn't believe that he, Israelis are ready to hear what he has to say. Um, his work broke the main assumption of previous, what we could uh, call establishment sociologists or mainstream sociologists, uh, that Israel is only a Jewish society. 
he broke the paradigm that it, it was ruling that we are talking only about the Jewish community before 48 and later after 48 only about the Jews in Israel. And he said from the beginning what we have is a society built by the settlers aiming to displace the Palestinians. And this can explain the constitution of the uh, political structure of Israel. And he did it precisely by comparing it to the United States. He took the model of the United States of a settled society that took the lands of the um, indigenous population, but the, the, uh, uh, what, uh, the big difference is that in the United States you have very big space, and in Israel we have very small space. And this, he says, this is the difference because the open frontier for the American society created the opportunity for individuals to move to the West, to take more and more lands, and build their individual power. This is the power of the markets, of civil society, that create, according to the, his interpretation, a democratic society with a balance between the individual and the citizens and the, uh, the state. So he explained that democracy is built on the power of the individuals and the uh, citizens. And uh, in the case of Israel, the situation was the opposite. In the case of Israel, uh, we have a very, very small land. As a matter of fa fact, no open uh, frontier. Most of the lands were not only occupied, but there were uh, uh, fertile lands, part of them, and all the fertile lands were already uh, uh, cultivated by the Palestinians. And the land was very, very expensive. The fact that the land was very expensive and there were already uh, very well uh, inserted in the global economy. The Palestinians were producing orange for, for, the, for Europe before the Jews came, the Zionist Jews came to Israel. So in this situation, the only way to build Zionism was by not an individual effort, but a collective effort. And the collective effort was, first of all, to a concentrate capital from Jews abroad in order to buy the land. The land was very expensive. But at the moment that they bought the land, they didn't want it to be private. They wanted it to be a, a I think the Zoom is not working. They wanted it to be a collective land in the ownership of the Zionist organization. I'm not sure it's clear. The lands are not the, the, the uh, lands. Okay, the lands are not at all private. This is the opposite of the United States. Yes. So the power is on the political institutions that control the lands and the economy, because all the economy was also built by uh, investment done by uh, the Zionist organization. 
So uh, uh, in this situation, his argument is that uh, instead of individualism, as you have in the United States, what you have here is collectivism. And the power is not the power of the citizens, it's the power of political institutions controlling everything. Political institutions in Israel control the lands, control the markets, uh, con uh, control uh, uh, working class, uh, workers uh, and labor power. The only thing that is free in Israel is the movement of capital. This is the basis of Baruch Kiran. Jonathan Shapiro did something very important, as is to focus on the political power and explain that everything here wasn't based on ideology, but on the power of the institution. And he influenced me uh, strongly, as you probably noticed in my analysis of uh, the power holders and how they neutralized everything. And uh, Michael Shalev uh, introduced me to uh, political economy and theories of uh, corporatism and neo-corporatism that I have been using it mainly in my first and second book, uh, when I wrote, work on uh, political economy. Uh, Jonathan Shapiro and, and Baruch Kimmerling were much more influential when I moved to analyze the Israel-Palestinian conflict, the um, peace process, etc. This uh, was much more important to use uh, Kimmerling and uh, Shapiro. Thank you for providing so much detail. That that's that's a great benefit to our listeners, and I appreciate you sharing these memories of your intellectual mentors. What is the vicious triangle dominating Israel's political economy? Can you explain to listeners what this is and why this is key to understanding? how Israel's political economy works and functions? I want to make it, to make it clear. The vicious triangle is an institutional analysis of Israel's political economy almost from its inception until the breaking of the triangle in 1985. The vicious triangle is a relation between three institutions, very powerful institutions, that were collaborating, cooperating in order to control civil society, working class, middle class, capital, everything. That includes the Zionist organization until 48, uh, and later on uh, the State of Israel, the Labour Party ruling the Zionist organization, and later on the, uh, the government and the state of Israel. And the third element, and most important, that is, this was my main important, most important contribution, is the Istadrut. The Istadrut is generally considered um, a, a trade union, but the Istadrut wasn't a trade union at all. And this is what makes things very difficult uh, to understand because the Istadrut mainly was the state in the making. Mm -hmm. The Istadrut established all the elements of a state. They had their own health system, 
they have their own um, uh, production system, trading uh, system, uh, education system, uh, housing system, cultural institutions, and also the military. Everything was built by the Istadrut at the beginning. And the structure of the Istadrut is the structure of a state. You are not a member of trade union. You are a member of the Istadrut in order to get their social services. This is the meaning. At the end, it remained being part of the health system because the only way to have a public health system at the beginning was the Istadrut. But after 48, it created a tension between the state and the Istadrut. And this was crucial crisis of the labor movement was that uh, the state, at, uh, led by Ben-Gurion, wanted to concentrate all the powers on the state. And the Istadrut was very powerful and influential and didn't want to give up their power. In this context, the mo most important uh, 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 code, I don't know how to say in a, in a, in a, in the triangle, you have three. The most important point of the in the triangle was the ruling party, Mapai and later Labor, Labor Party, because they ruled both. They ruled the state, the government, and the Istadrut. So when there were clashes between both sides, the party was the place where this con con um, uh, the conflicts were solved. So the party was the uh, the strong side that was nominating people who will rule the state and people that will rule the Istadrut. And this is the clash that I, 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 I led to the so-called uh, La Bonne Affair. In chapter four of your book, you describe in quite significant detail the interrelationship between the Levon affair of 1954, the appointment of Pinchas Levon to the position of Secretary General of the Histadrut, and the vicious triangle dominating Israel's political economy during the 1960s. Can you explain the interconnections for us? Yes. Uh, I think uh, th this is a. Th this chapter is based on my book, The uh, Istadrut of a Ball, that uh, mainly I used uh, archival material to understand the crisis of the labor movement of Mapai, the Istadrut, while they were the ruling party in both institutions. In the, in, they have the majority in the government, they have the majority, big majority in the Istadrut, and they lose control. Pinchas Labon was uh, nominated as Minister of uh, uh, Security after Ben-Gurion left for a small break of two years. And he, he was uh, responsible during an, an event that almost no one understood what happened there in '54, when the uh, Mossad sent uh, some spies to the uh, to Egypt in order to create some tension between Egypt and the United States after the Nasser revolution 
and uh, they were caught and the government uh, took them uh, and uh, to, to jail and uh, two of them were even uh, uh, hanged. So the question was, who did this big uh, mistake? The, the question was, who gave the order to, to do that uh, uh, operation? And Rabon argued that this, uh, he didn't, that the security establishment did it, usually connected to Ben-Gurion, because he was the leader of the uh, state in '48, and he was the minister of security all the years. And he was removed. But no one really solved the question who gave, who gave the, the, the order, who initiated the operation. And then, but Labon was very strong. Then he was nominated by the party as the secretary of the Istadrut. So the tensions between the Istadrut and, and the government that I already mentioned became tensions, individual tensions, personal tensions between Labon and Ben Gurion. Ben Gurion, the leader of this, the, the prime minister, and Labon, the leader of the Istadrut. The Istadrut had much more power than the government. That was the point. Mm. And they were able to neutralize decisions because the Istadrut is a very big bureaucratic uh, apparatus that they control also the party. And when they control the party, they can control also the government. So Ben-Gurion used all his power in order to remove Labon. At the beginning, he failed. But in some moment, the minister of uh, Treasury uh, that was in conflict also with Labon, he succeeded to create a majority to remove Labon, a small majority to remove Labon in the party. His name is uh, Levi Eshkol, and he became the strong man in the party, stronger than Ben-Gurion, because he was the only one that had the power to remove Labon. So later on, he entered in conflict with, with Ben-Gurion, and he removed also Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion left the party because he was completely uh, neutralized by, uh, by Eshkol, by the, by the Stadrut apparatus and the party apparatus. And he built his own party, uh, and, but succeed, didn't succeed to, to, to change the situation. But here we come to the big, the big issue. And the big issue, in my opinion, is that this failure of uh, the Labour Party is a, a the main explanation I give to the expansion of the borders of Israel in '67, mm-hmm. and I want to explain this. It's not easy to explain in a few words. Sure. I read it in a book, full book. The power of the Stadrut and the Labour Party was based on the weakness of the workers. The workers were weak before '48 because they have no jobs. They were dependent on the Stadrut and the Zionist organization led by the Labour Party on uh, building the economy, creating jobs for them. And they were competing constantly with the Palestinian workers that were uh, cheaper workers. So they depended completely on the institutions. This was the power of the party until 48. After 48, the workers started to be encouraged by the fact that they are not competing with the Palestinians. And uh, 
In the 50s, this tension was contained by the fact that there was a big, big migration of Oriental Jews. The Oriental Jews became the lower parts of the working part, uh, uh, class, and the previous workers became managers, middle classes, etc. And most of them were European Ashkenazi. In this situation, during the 50s, there was no possibility to organize the working class. But in the 60s, the situation completely changed when we had a situation of full employment. During the full employment, even the Palestinian workers that were inside Israel under military rule were slowly released from their military control and were part of the, became part of the working class and started to unify. And uh, when I write about the resistance, the resistance move movement in the 60s is a move the movement of the working class, the rank and file organizing against the Istadrut and the ruling party, Labour Party. In this situation, the person that became a potential leader of this movement was Pinchas Labon, because he was in conflict with the party and he was connected to the Istadrut basis. And here we come to the uh, different repertoires to neutralize the working class. The re first repertoire was to take one of the working uh, uh, class parties that were leading the revolt and to take them and make with them one union between the so-called Akhduta Avoda and Mapai, and they created the Labour Party. This is the strategy of cooptation. The second, this was until 65. In 65, there were elections. And then we have a, a second reaction is a recession, a very deep recession during 65 and 67, when the working class was weakened by the market. But it was precisely because the Labour Party and the state and the Istadrut could do it together with no opposition. But the problem was, and the big problem was, that in this situation, in the next elections, the Labour Party could lose their power. So 67 was the savior of the Labour Party for 10 years. Why? The working class was again divided between Jews and Arabs, and was divided between European workers that were in more, more uh, powerful positions and the Oriental Jews workers. And this is a situation that we have until now of divide and rule. Uh, my argument is that it's an institutional argument. The institutions of the labor movement, the Istadrut and Labor Party, were built on the weakness of the workers and their dependency before 48. In the 60s, they succeeded to reorganize and to revolt, to make resistance to the power of the Istadrut and the Labour Party, but were again broken by the expansion of the markets, the labor markets to unorganized Palestinian workers under military rule. It means the Palestinian workers couldn't organize even to struggle for their rights. So the 
those workers that uh, Jewish workers and, and Palestinian workers inside Israel that were organizing in the 60s, they were completely weakened by the new structure of the uh, Israeli economy, political economy, that is based on the military rule of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, what, what I want to make uh, uh, here the point is that my chapters go between class uh, uh, revolts and ethnic revolts, explaining how they, they change one after the other. In, in the 50s, we have an ethnic revolt of the uh, Oriental Jews, which were, were uh, discriminated by the ruling party. In the 60s, you have a very strong class organization of uh, uh, Oriental Jews, uh, uh, Ashkenazi Jews, and, and uh, Palestinian workers. They are broken by in 67. Then you have a reorganization of Oriental Jews because they became in the middle between the uh, Palestinians entering the markets and the stronger uh, uh, European Ashkenazi workers that were uh, in the stronger positions. And this is the new ethnic riots that we have in 71. And later on, when they are broken, we have the organization of the uh, strong Ashkenazi workers uh, in the 80s against the liberalization of the economy. Thank you for sharing your erudition with us in regard to this. In chapter two, you devote significant attention to the role of the Zionist labor movement within the Histadrut, suppressing the joint Jewish-Arab strike of 1931. Can you describe how this unfolded? Similarly, if you had devoted more attention to the 1936 general strike, which precipitated the 1936 to 1939 Arab revolt, what would you have said about that if you could have devoted more detail? Thank you very much for this question because it, uh, it's uh, on time after I uh, uh, have already talked about ethnic and class revolts, we have the anti-colonial revolts. And uh, I have two chapters. One is on, on the uh, strike in 31. And the second is about the first intifada. And I, I hope you will ask me later about the uh, intifada and how the intifada yes. was uh, yes, neutralized. But in 31, uh, there was an event that um, almost, I think no one wrote really about what happened. Some historians mentioned that there was a strike of Jews and Arabs, but they don't really analyze the meaning. In 31, there was an incredible mobilization of all civil society against the colonial rule of the British on a typical issue of anti-colonial struggle on taxes. The British were the owners of the rail uh, company, uh, the, how do they, railway companies, and they built a, a lo, a several railway uh, 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 I don't know how to say it. 
Pasear Kevin. They built a lot of trails uh, um, com com communicating all the country, but also they built a, a lot of routes. And uh, there was a conflict between the motorized transportation and the trains. And in this conflict, most people used buses, trucks, and cars. And the, the, the company, the railway company, started to uh, enter a big deficit. Uh, all the deficit of the British, and they didn't like to have the uh, deficit in nowhere, was based on the, um, on the deficit of the uh, uh, rail company. To, to, make you, uh, to give you an example, in 1931, the, day, the, the year of the strike, the general deficit of the government was one. 100,000 pounds. The deficit of the railway company was 150,000 pounds. All the deficit was there. So they, they, they decided to tax almost everything that was in, in the motorized uh, transportation. Uh, first of all, oil, but also later on, uh, 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 on parts of the, uh, of the trucks and the, and, and the Buses, everything that could be um, taxed, they did it. And also in the license. Only the license taxes were enough in order to cover all the deficit. But this created a revolt of everyone. Uh -huh. First of all, and most important, the uh, bus drivers and the uh, um, truck drivers. I will make sure something different about the, the, the drivers. The drivers is, is misunderstood. You, you have individual drivers. We have mainly small cooperative of Jews and a, a company, big companies of Palestinians. And uh, all these together in buses and trucks organized together under the leadership of a lawyer uh, that learned in London, very well articulated, that in my opinion was the most important leader of the Palestinian movement. And uh, I'm, I'm, maybe I would say some words about him. But the main point is this. He organized a joint organization built on a parity, 50-50, Jews and Arabs. But they were not controlled by the Istadrut. They were representing a civil society and the potential power of civil society. And civil society had no conflict like settler uh, uh, movements because they were built mainly on cities and they, their interests in the market. And they have common interest vis-a-vis -vis the state that was taxing them. So they organized, but immediately all the commerce chambers supported the strike. All the users of trucks and buses were supporting the strike because otherwise they need to pay. So it was incredible mobilization. And uh, immediately after the success of the strike, they succeeded. The government, the British government in London uh, decided to compromise and to lower all the taxes that they were trying to, to impose. Immediately after that, 
the policy was to try to uh, build some form of dialogue between Jews and Arabs. And here yes. come the, the, the big, I don't think mistake, they did it intentionally, the big um, rejection of uh, the Labour Party, the Labour Movement, the Zionist Organization, to the offer, very generous offer, of uh, Hassan Sidkil Dejani, the leader of the movement, the leader of the, of the organi joint organization, to try to start building joint organizations in all uh, the spheres of the life and the economy in order to create a situation that after the British mandate ends, Jews and Arabs will be able to cooperate. This offer was rejected. And then in 36, the point is that the, this same so-called uh, uh, driver organization de uh, declared the big general strike. And the leader was Hassan Sid Kildajani, and it was against the British. But then the Jews were on the side of the British, and the demand, main demand, was to halt migration. And here my, my analysis goes that the migration to Palestine from 31 to 36 changed the balance of power between Jews and Arabs in the three big cities. Mm -hmm. The big cities are Jerusalem, Yafo, Tel Aviv, Yaffa, Tel Aviv, and Haifa. In these three big cities, the Jews became the majority. In 31, there were even Jews and Arabs in the big cities. And this is a situation when the uh, moderate elites led by Hassan Tzitki, they decide that they need to stop uh, two main elements of Zionism, migration and uh, 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 selling lands. These were their two goals because they feel that they are going to lose their country. And they were right. But the development in 1936 is uh, that the uh, at the end, the Palestinian society was divided by the moderate, between the moderates and the radicals. My analysis is that the moderates were uh, the bourgeoisie in the, in the cities that were ready to compromise with Zionism. And the radicals were based mainly in the country, the peasants, because they were losing their lands. Uh -huh. And they didn't trust the moderate leaders, and they started to kill each other. And they killed Hassan Sid Kildajani mm. because he wasn't trusted as a leader by the peasants. In my opinion, this is the moment when the Palestinian national movement uh, loses. It's a fight. It was an incredible, powerful movement. The British and the French uh, were discussing how they had so much power to have a strike, general strike, six months without stopping it. There was no such a struggle against colonialism like the Palestinian struggle. No in the Middle East, no in, the, in India, nowhere. But it was broken by uh, the British mainly. The military power, they brought forces from Ireland, 
specializing on breaking uh, this kind of movement. And uh, at the end, they were, were internally divided because they couldn't articulate the interest of the uh, peasants and the uh, middle classes in the city. This was my argument about uh, 31, that the middle classes in the cities were able to, to lead the movement together with the Jews because they had the same interest. But the peasants were in conflict with the settlers, and in the sight of the Jews, the ruling part, the ruling power were the settlers. So as a matter of fact, the strategy of the labor movement it was to take uh, as much lands as you can, but later on, to make a division of the land and partition, this was the strategy that succeeded in 48. Thank you for providing that answer. I really appreciate it, and our listeners will absolutely benefit. Um, you, in Chapter 3, you describe how the Wadi Salib riots ended in the following words. This is how political parties can become anti-democratic without breaking the democratic rules of the game. What did you mean by this? Can you describe the economic origins of the Wadi Salib riots? Why did they start and how did they end? Oh, you have a very complex question. Let me divide it into parts. Because one question is, is about democracy and how democracy may fail to contain a social conflict. Uh, and this is my main theoretical argument in the book and also in my previous books. And the other is the concrete question about what is a live revolt. What is a live revolt was a revolt that started in Haifa. What is a live is a Palestinian a neighborhood in Haifa, uh, which was evacuated from the Palestinians, and were, uh, the, 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 the houses of Palestinians were taken, were, were occupied by uh, Jews from uh, uh, Arab countries that arrived after 48. And these groups were in Arab, in, in, in Palestinian houses, but they were under domination of the ruling party, uh, the labor party, that uh, controlled all the markets. They controlled the movement of Palestinians, they controlled the movement of, uh, of the uh, Oriental Jews, they controlled also the, the whole economy. And the, the Oriental Jews dis uh, felt discrimination, economic discrimination, that were inserted in the lower of the economy, they felt a, a cultural a denigration because they are coming from Arab countries. And in 1959, also the labor market started to develop and the, the Arabs it started to enter the, the, the labor market. So they had the feeling, a strong feeling, that they are discriminated similar to the Arabs. So they went to uh, uh, riots, uh, and the riots were repressed by violence by the Labour Party. And this moment, this, this is my argument, the Labour Party became the party that was most identified with the repression of the Oriental Jews. Uh -huh. So 
the left, the Labour Party, the so-called left, I don't believe they are left, but the so-called left became immediately identified since 59 with the uh, interests of the European Jews, the middle classes and the repression of, uh, and discrimination of the Oriental Jews. Later on, if you are, allow me to jump to sure. 71, yes. the Black Panthers organized in a very similar situation. They were living in a Palestinian neighborhood evacuated in 48 called Musrara. And after the ceasefire with Egypt in, 70, in 1970, the, uh, member, the, the, the inhabitants of, of, uh, of this uh, neighborhood that were all of them, uh, these are uh, Jews coming from Arab countries, and they were living in very poor conditions, but they saw that also the Palestinians are, are entering the labor market, and they could feel that they are discriminated similar to the Palestinians. So they broke into this riot of the Black Panthers in 71, and this is the moment when the Israeli politics changed, because uh, Instead of joining the uh, or building a new party of Oriental Jews, the Likud party, led by Menachem Benigin, succeeded to channel the, hang, the anger of Oriental Jews against the Labour Party to his right-wing project, nationalist project, ethno-nationalist project of discrimination, structural discrimination of Palestinians. What does it mean? It means that the Oriental Jews, according to this view of the Likud, Menachem Begin, and today Benjamin Netanyahu, should support the continued repression of the Palestinians under military rule, demanding equality with, with the other Jews. They still remain in a weaker position, but they don't identify with those that are most uh, discriminated. They are fighting in their and against their own discrimination, but the paradox is that they are discriminated because they are considered uh, inferior because they are Arabs. And in this situation, you have a political uh, deadlock that we almost are unable to change. Here come the, sec the first intifada. Let me say something about democracy sure. and the, the concept of political space. Democracy, in my interpretation, is um, institutional settings, are institutional settings, able to contain conflicts within the borders of the state. And they do it by allowing social groups to organize, to express themselves, and to participate in the political field. So the political field is a field of representation. Here I make a distinction between the concept of political field, suggested by Bourdieu, between a concept I suggest is political space. In the field, you have players. And you have rules of the game, you have discourse, uh, you have struggles. 
The political space is a space of symbolic representation in the political field, but it can be open and closed. It's a dynamic space. So groups, in order to be represented, they need to organize. This is the resistance. You cannot open political space for a group, otherwise they organize. Because the power holders don't want you to have power and don't want, don't want you to organize. But when the group attempts to open the political space, the intention of the power holders is to prevent the power of the repressed. And then they have different repertoire. This is the reason that I say that uh, the poli uh, political space is a dynamic space. Democracy can facilitate the opening of political space because it has the rules of the game. But democracy can be also a, a policy. It can be, a, I call it illusionary. You believe you, you can build power, but there are some elements that prevent you constantly from building power. And these are mainly uh, institutions, uh, organizations, discourses that prevent the democratization, or meaning the opening of political space to repressed groups. And this is the reason I argue that Israel is an imagined democracy, but as a matter of fact, it is an illusion. All democracies are imagined, simply because we imagine the people and we imagine the political parties represent. And the people has the power to remove those that are not representing them. These are the rules of the game. But if you have institutional barriers that prevent building power for certain groups, this is an illusion because they cannot change. And those that, uh, the, the main element that prevent, in, in the case of Israel, building power is for sure the military rule of the Palestinians because the Palestinians have no legitimate way to be represented. And here we come to the first intifada. Yes, I, I was, I was going to ask you about the first intifada in light of this, okay. in light of this background like that you provided, uh, yeah, do it briefly. Sure. Uh, because I would like to add something about today. But the first intifada opened the space for the Palestinians. The, their mobilization forced the Israelis to recognize that they have a problem they need to deal with. You cannot continue occupying the Palestinians in this way. And by the way, the first institution or power holder that recognized the, the meaning of the Intifada was the military. The military declared, we have no military solution. And then you need a political solution. That is what they said. As a matter of fact, must be, I want to make a, something precise, more precise. It doesn't mean that Israel didn't have the the, the military power to repress. It didn't have the legitimacy to do it. In the eyes of the most Israelis, in the eyes of the world, and in the eyes of, of, of the soldiers. So the military said to the politicians, find the solution. And who became the, the leader of this attempt to find a solution? The minister of security is Rabin. Rabin represented the military in their attempt to have some partner to control the Palestinians. This is what they wanted. 
a partner to neutralize the Intifada. That was a very strong national anti-colonial movement. And they found him. The partner was Yasser Arafat. So Arafat entered this situation because he, the Palestinians were in a very weak position. And he was completely sure, convinced, that he will be able to, to move in a way that he will be able to convince the Israelis and Isaac Rabin, more precisely, to compromise and build an independent Palestinian state. The, Palestinian, the interest of Palestinians is not peace. Also, Israelis are not interested in peace. Peace is a word that contains both claims. Palestinian claims for independence and the Israeli-Jewish interest in security. So the compromise is called peace. But they didn't agree yet on the terms of peace. And Rabin was assassinated. I always remind everyone that the last person to the continued mourning the assassination of Rabin and his, his last days was Yasser Arafat, because he built all his moves and his capacity to convince Rabin, because he's a fighter, he's a military man, he's a strong man, to compromise. The assassination of Rabin derailed the peace process at that moment already, in my opinion. But it created a system of control of Palestinians. But by co-optation of the Palestinian leadership, the moderate Palestinian leadership of the PLO. So you have cooperation of the uh, Palestinian Authority that never, never will reach in this way independence. Because in, in order to have independence, you need a revolt. And then Second Intifada derailed everything. Because instead of opening a political space of recognition, it immediately pushed, unintentionally. The intention was, in my opinion, of the Palestinians to do exactly what they, what they did in, uh, in the first intifada, to force the Israelis to negotiate. But the reaction of the Israelis was closing the Palestinian uh, political space for recognition and representation and negotiation. Why? And this is a second condition for uh, political space. You, you have two conditions for the political space, a balance of power and borders. And the second intifada penetrated the Israeli borders differently from the first intifada. And Israelis became afraid and supported the repression of the Palestinians. More and more power used to, to prevent any political achievement of this second intifada. And then the military changed its position, exactly. In the first intifada, they said, we need a political solution. In the second intifada, they said, we need a military solution. We need to prevent the Palestinians to, to believe they can remove us from the land. And uh, this is uh, the very sad end of the, my analysis of uh, the so-called peace process that was derailed and created a structure of control of Palestinians, much more effective than before the First Intifada. And the Palestinians are today in a worse situation, despairing situation, because they don't find a way to struggle, a legitimate struggle mobilizing everyone. 
What is your interpretation of the spring 2021 Jewish-Arab riots, which just recently transpired, and the most recent Israeli-Palestinian-Israeli-Gaza conflicts, which, which unfolded? You know, the context is the, that the Palestinians have no elections since 2006 when the Hamas won the election. And uh, now they are completely divided, split between the Palestinians in the West Bank, uh, who are under the control of uh, the Palestinian Authority, the Gaza Strip that is under siege, uh, or black blockade, whatever you can call it, it's a kind of prison. Yeah. They are the Hamas rule, the West Bank rules uh, uh, the PLO. And you have also East Jerusalem that is now completely disconnected from the West Bank and are under uh, an intention to remove even uh, uh, from their houses. And this is the case, case of Sheikh Jarrah, that it was the the, the spark of all the whole events in May. The attempt to remove uh, Palestinians that were previously removed to this place, Palestinian refugees that are now in houses that Israel claims that they are houses of Israeli before 48. So Israel has the power, the state power, to remove Palestinians for a second time from their houses while uh, Palestinians have no right to demand, to claim their properties inside Israel. Most of Israel are Palestinian property, controlled by the state. The lands are controlled by the state. So this situation of constant, uh, uh, what the Palestinians call constant Nakba, constant uh, uh, transfer, and creating new and new refugee situations, exploded in a moment that the Palestinian Authority lost completely it, uh, its uh, legitimacy, and it exploded by uh, the exploitation of this situation by the Hamas by firing uh, Jerusalem, sending their rockets to Jerusalem as a kind of solidarity with the struggle of the in, uh, East Jerusalem uh, in Sheikh Jarrah. But then happened something unexpected. Two elements unexpected. One is the revolt of Palestinians in the so-called mixed cities. What we call mixed cities are cities that in the past were Palestinian cities. It is a, a Jaffa, it is Lid, it's Ramle, it's Haife. And these cities were in the past Palestinians. The people living there are Palestinians that are not living in their original homes. All of them were removed from their homes, but all of them have the memory of removal. And now there is a new movement of extremist uh, religious settlers trying to remove them from their homes now. So there is a kind of new generation of young people that their grandfathers were transferred from their houses, and now they are, they, they are fighting in their against the transfer of themselves from their houses in Sheikh Shehrach, in, in Jaffa, in Lid, in Haifa. So this created a kind of new, I would say, 
Palestinian consciousness of the struggle against their settler society that is removing them from their homes. And Hamas used, used this situation very in manipulative way because they have the rockets. This is the only power they have. They have rockets. But this is uh, frightening all Israelis. And the Palestinian Authority has no power. Uh, in this situation, they created, they, they are trying to build an image of the leader of the Palestinian people. But I'm, I'm not sure they succeed because the Palestinians don't want rockets. What they want is to end the removal. They want to uh, have some sense of justice, of equality, to end this settler movement that is constantly removing them from their houses and to have independence. Um, here I want to say maybe the, the something that we should conclude about democracy again. Democracy itself is not the solution because when you have ethnic and national conflict and colonial conflict, to say everyone will have the same one one main one vote, like they, they did in South Africa, will not solve the question. In order to solve the question, we need to build new institutions able to contain conflict and able to represent everyone. And one man, one vote is not the solution. But also, in my opinion, two states is not also a solution because you still have settlers in the West Bank and you have a big minority of Palestinians inside Israel. So we need to, lead, to look for some kind of a institutional binding of, of democracy that contains the interests of all sides. It's not at all an easy work. And in my opinion, uh, what can I say? Uh, the new government is not going in the right direction. You actually preempted my next question. Um, um, you have a passage in chapter 7, uh, page 228, where you write, the internal democratization of the Labour Party could never have happened without the Palestinian Tefada demarcating the borders of the Israeli sovereign state and democratic politics, counterbalancing the Israeli dominant military power by means of strikes and demonstrations. The reformist young leaders within the Labour Party, also influenced by military and economic elites, sought to represent civil society vis-a-vis -vis the state. The balance of power changed due to the mobilization of Israeli and international public opinion against the occupation, and most importantly, the change in U.S. administration's attitude that started to exert pressure on the Israeli government to recognize and negotiate with the Palestinians. In light of what you describe about the 1992 elections leading to the rise of the Labour Party, what is your perspective on the present new Israeli government that's just been formed? You know, the only, only comparison is that you have a change in the government in the United States. You don't have a political party able to articulate such a change. We don't have a process of internal democratization. We have a deterioration of the political system in Israel, incredible deterioration. The internal divisions that are not based even on political debate. They are based on, on, on what they call tribal hostility. So uh, uh, building on this new government is completely uh, 
nonsense in my opinion. But there is one thing that it has changed. And, and by the way, also the military is not in a mood of compromise. Uh, the Palestinians are, un are un unable to organize, at this moment at least, a, a, a coherent, unified struggle uh, against the occupation. And uh, the only change that is significant is the um, political position of the parties of the Palestinian citizens of Israel. Uh, and they, uh, this change, it, it was due to the uh, COVID virus. Because uh, under the, this struggle, that is a social struggle, uh, that we need to build solidarity, one of the most important uh, and salient uh, contributions were uh, Palestinians that are very important part of the health system, doctors and nurses, and they were recognized as a very uh, a, a positive factor. And then the recognition of the, of the, the doctors and, uh, and, and nurses and, and their being part of the, the, the struggle legitimized the Palestinian parties that were constantly uh, prevented from participation in the political system since Rabin. By the way, the only one that has the courage to make a coalition that is also based on Palestinian parties was Rabin. Since his assassination, it was completely, completely delegitimized the possibility to make a coalition with Palestinian parties. Now, both Netanyahu and the opposition were ready to negotiate with Palestinian parties, uh, were ready to compromise, and now in, the, in this present coalition, they are completely dependent on the uh, Islamic party that is part of the coalition. But you have also the uh, joint list of the Palestinian that are also playing the game. So this is, this is the most significant change that I think it's important, but we still don't have a political party able to articulate this strategy, are able to articulate some vision of the future, uh, neither in the Middle East, neither within Israel. Uh, uh, politics are, have been destroyed since uh, 2000, at the moment that uh, uh, the only strategy of Israel was to repress, and the Palestinians were denied any option of uh, resistance. In your perspective, does the presence of the Ra'am party led by Mansour Abbas in the present coalition suggest an opening or a closure of political space for the Palestinians? No, this is an opening, definitely. Mm. This is what I would try to, to, to explain. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the role of Meretz and the Labour Party sitting in the present government? The problem of Meretz and the... And, and, uh, Labour Party is that they have no power. They know that, and they they are doing very small moves that may be positive, but they have no power, and they are not uh, so determined to to influence. They, for mm -hmm. them, uh, the the main goal is to prevent Netanyahu from being in party in power. I don't think this is the main goal of politics. This is a tribal discourse. Uh, we and them. Uh, but uh, there is not a political discourse. In this sense, uh, uh, I don't see any political discourse breaking 
this division that is called left and, and right, but it's not left and not right. It's simply a, a, a division between two tribes. One is identified, the, the, the so-called left center, identified with a, a European secular a, settlers. And the other one is in, identified with the Oriental Jews, with a religious parties, with, with ultra-Orthodox parties. But there is no debate about the future, not economic debates, future, social future, political future, compromise with Palestinians, no debate about nothing. Maybe the United States can do something good, I don't know. Biden, at the, at the moment, it seems that he's going to, trying to, to withdraw from everything that is connected with the Middle East, so I'm not sure I can trust him. Thank you for sharing that. Um, to, to, to what degree can your book's argument and thesis be applied to the Haredim? To what degree can Haredi protests against the Israeli government be understood through the insights that your book provides regarding collective action? Or to what degree are questions of Haredi integration or segregation into or from Israeli political economy relevant to the argument raised in your book? This is a very good and difficult question. The, the ultra-Orthodox community are very peculiar. They have, on the one side, a lot of political power because they are Jewish. It means that in a regime that gives the Jews supremacy, being ultra-Orthodox gives them a special right even not to serve in the military because they are Jewish enough to show that uh, they, they are uh, loyal. But they are completely uh, separated from society, the, the, the rest of society. They uh, don't participate enough in the labor market. They, um, they are subsidized by the state to, to keep most of the uh, young people in, in the yeshivas. And uh, they don't interact with other people. They, this, they are keeping their segregation. So it created a situation very, very strange that they are very detached from the state, but they have a lot of power in the state. And uh, this situation created a lot of anger against them. And uh, as a matter of fact, the, the, the COVID period and the, the, the virus emphasized this detachment from society, uh, the fact they they don't trust the government and they do whatever they want, uh, almost like uh, even worse than Trump and his followers against uh, keeping a, a mask or, or distance or whatever resolutions of the government, and they have also the power to 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 continue keeping the uh, segregation. So uh, the, the, the analysis of the Orthodox Jews is very important. Yeah, and the, the fact that they uh, were so deeply uh, attached to the right wing and to Netanyahu, now is going to damage them, in my opinion. And uh, this, the, the political discourse doesn't at all really face the problems this society has. This community and their inter the integration. 
Uh, by the way, maybe we need to finish. I want to comment something about myself. I'm a, as a sociologist and academician, I'm working very hard in order to try to integrate uh, um, ultra-Orthodox students in the academic system because they are not studying. And yes. they, they don't study because they don't believe they can be in uh, shared classes, men and women. So I strongly support the building classes and, and uh, the uh, academy that enables them, facilitates their learning in separate classes, men and women. But I'm, my struggle is um, losing. Most of the uh, academy are, and the um, professionals are against this separation because they say this is backwards, this is primitive, this is uh, against uh, uh, human uh, justice and, and human rights and women rights, etc., etc. And uh, so there is no effort even to try to give them uh, some tools to work in the future by academic uh, uh, education. This is a struggle that maybe it will change. I don't know. But uh, uh, the dominant forces are against any possibility to merge them. And I don't think we need to change their culture or, and their views in order to help them to be participating in society. Uh, this is also a struggle uh, between the powerful and the weak. In your conclusion, you write the following insight. Mizrahi collective identity is delegitimized by the Ashkenazi elites precisely because it is collective identity able to contain tensions within Israeli society between secular and religious Orient and Occident Arabs and Jews. In other words, it is an alternative national identity for Israeli civil society challenging the dominant power of secular Ashkenazi elites. The Mizrahi political actors are the only ones that might challenge the dominant Ashkenazi elites capable to contain society civil society's tensions, hence they are not only non-recognized as such, but also constantly actively delegitimized or co-opted. Are there any present trends in Israeli society that make you optimistic about Mizrahi collective action? What do you see as the future as Mizra of Mizrahi collective action? You know, uh, this is the most uh, uh, actual debate about who will represent the, the Mizrahim, the Oriental Jews. Uh, my analysis is that the, the Oriental Jews are the only group that has no legitimation to organize the political parties. Um, Oriental Jews are an artifact of the settler society. They, they are called Oriental Jews or Mizrahim by the dominant groups that treated the, all of them as the same and as inferior and as people that should do the lower uh, jobs and, and have a worse uh, housing, etc., etc. So the construction of Oriental Jews and Ashkenazi Jews is a construction in Israel. You don't have uh, Oriental Jews in Canada. You have uh, Moroccans, you have uh, Iraqi Jews, but you don't have Oriental Jews. Oriental Jews is a phenomenon of Israel. Of treating Arabness as inferior. But 
here is the point that Oriental Jews being discriminated and they develop some kind of consciousness that we are discriminated and we are Oriental Jews, but they have no legitimacy to organize the political parties. This is precisely what happened in 59 and, uh, and in 71 with the Black Panthers. They are not legitimate. And the question is why? So the way to uh, try to mobilize their votes was taken by uh, the Likud party, Menachem Begin, channeling the anger, but not representing them. And uh, later on, one of the uh, uh, religious parties, Jazz, started to say, well, we are also traditional and religious, so we represent you. But no one is representing the situation of the Oriental Jews. The point is this, why they are not allowed, I say allowed, to have their own representation? Because, precisely because they are an outcome of the local situation in Israel. They were created only here. The Ashkenazi movement was created in, in Eastern Europe. The identity of the Ashkenazis was created there. They attempted to bring it here, to Palestine. The Mizrahi Jews are the only ones that were created here, and their identity became, became an, a, a challenge, an alternative of a national uh, solidarity. Instead of the settler solidarity of the Europeans taking the land, that, and, and with hostility to Arabs, to Oriental Jews, to, to or Orthodox Jews, or to religious Jews. The Middle East in general, the Oriental Jews coming from the Middle East, they may merge and create a non-settler identity for all Israelis because they can contain together secular and religion. The West and the East, Arabs and Jews, they are both. Jews and Arabs. So the contention of the, all these contradictions can be done also only when the Oriental Jews are empowered. Is this possible? Not clear. And now this is the debate because at the moment that Netanyahu was removed from prime minister, it became clear that all parties in the government are parties led by European Ashkenazi secular and one religious that is blamed that he's not religious enough. All the others are either religious or supported by Oriental Jews. So the question is if this situation will create an Oriental Jewish party, or the most important, if the Likud may change its uh, uh, policies and become a party of the Oriental Jews. This is a debate I don't think the Oriental Jews uh, developing a, a kind of nationalist, racist attitude uh, towards the Arabs will be really representing what I think should be constructed. But if I have a, a vision of a change, this could be the change, the most, most important change. And with this uh, optimistic <laughs> yes, vision, maybe we need to. Yes, we should bring it to an end. Uh, the last thing I will just ask you is, what are you working on now? What is your current research project on? 
Well, I'm working on several issues. Um, one is on the past, how the settler uh, society was constructed in the in the in the period of the before forty eight. The other is on the future, and it's related to the possible options to the dichotomy between one-state solution and two-state solution. I'm working on a project with other people on the concept of a, a, a confederation that is, in my opinion, the, the meaning of the solution of partition in 48 is confederation and not com complete separation between Jews and Arabs, because this is impossible. And this is my main interest now. I'm also very interested on, on, on the development of these uh, resistance movements of the people all over the world and in the case of Israel. Uh, but I, I think the case of uh, Israel-Palestine, the most urgent is the question of uh, some containment of the violence by very creative and, uh, cre and, and inventive solutions. And this is what we are looking for, Jews and Palestinians. Thank you. Uh, a remarkable research agenda. Um, we would love to have another conversation, perhaps when that research is finished. Uh, I'd love to read your next book. Um, to our listeners, this has been Dr. Lev Luis Greenberg discussing his new book, Movements, with V-E in brackets, Movements of Resistance, Politics, Economy, and Society in Israel-Palestine, 1931 to 2013. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, with New Books in Israel Studies. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.